0: Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing?
1: It's good to be back, man. I like it when we bang out a lot of shows. Last month, I was kind of in this like, vacation-y lull, which sounds weird. I appreciated it, but it feels good to be like back in the flow and being productive.
0: Yeah, totally. POV crypto has turned into one of my f- most favorite hobbies to get into, so I'm excited to put out a bunch of cool interviews coming out in the next few weeks or so.
1: Yeah, man. I'm intimidated.
0: Little intimidated by how popular we are now?
1: Nah, just so many interviews, not enough time. This was a fun little show. A good friend of mine, Evan Baylitz, he's been in the space for quite some time. He works at Kraken, uh, Kraken's crypto watch product. And he's just been thinking about mass adoption and thinking about how this thing's going to work. And, you know, he's not a maximalist. He studies ETH, he studies BTC. He has insight into the markets. I think this was a really good episode.
0: Yeah, we definitely start off talking about what it's like to be growth at Kraken, and I was super interested in what it's like to be growth for a U.S. based company. Uh, as as somebody who's also working on growth for a U.S. based company, it's it's something I'm super interested in. Um, and then we just talk about much more high level details at the second half of the debate, talking about. Um, geopolitical consequences of of crypto and what it means to be a part of this like cyber entity, cyber nations um kind of a, a very wide-ranging conversation evan's a super
1: smart guy you guys don't forget five-star reviews follow the show engage with us on twitter
0: christian and i definitely spend too much time on twitter so definitely take advantage of that you can tweet at the show at pov crypto pod or either of us we are always around
1: if you ever want to start a fight just at one of us, it's, it's so yeah. easy.
0: We're on a hair trigger. <laughs> All right. And without further ado, Evan Bayless.
1: All right, everyone. I'm super excited to bring you uh, a new friend of mine, Evan Bayless. Uh, Evan works for Kraken and has been in the space for quite some time. Uh, we got to know each other because uh, of Rod Rudy and... John Kristovich, uh, two of my coworkers that introduced us. Evan, welcome to POV Crypto.
2: Thanks for having me, Christian. Really excited to be here. Um, I guess I can go through a little bit of my background, how I got into the space, how I got to Kraken. So, uh, at Kraken, I work on the CryptoWatch team. The CryptoWatch product is a specific product within Kraken's portfolio that allows traders to trade across exchanges, manage positions, and all sorts of different coins on a bunch of exchanges. So we kind of want to be the Bloomberg of crypto. And on that team, I am the sole growth marketer. So I have a really unique role in that I get to work with super technical people and developers that are building the product and our product managers, but then try to translate what they're creating to a wider audience, not just power traders, but also people who are just checking the price and coming to the site to look at charts or whatnot, but may not trade regularly. So I've been thinking a ton about adoption working on it, especially from a speculation sort of mindset. Uh, How I got into crypto is I back in the day, probably 2015, 2016, I studied in college the history of technology, and I was always interested in how technologies took off. And in these large technology businesses that kind of permeate our lives now, Google, Facebook, Amazon and whatnot. I came across a book called uh, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, which is essentially about how these tech companies are getting so huge and have such a huge monopoly on a product we don't understand, which is like data and communication, and how that kind of changes the world landscape, changes the sociology of societies, changes how capital flows. And blockchain was something that the author brought up at the end of the book, I think his name is Douglas Rushkoff, and he writes a lot about the interaction of humans and society, and he talked about how blockchains could possibly change the way that capital flows in these systems and how they're organized. So that kind of put the bug in my ear, and then I started reading more, I read the Bitcoin white paper, and I went down the rabbit hole pretty hard through 2016, 2017, quit my job at the beginning of Uh, 2018 i was working for a marketing tech company and then i moved to kraken at the end of 2018 after doing a bunch of dives into trading and mining and all sorts of different things Uh, and then i found myself at kraken which has been a great community to continue learning more and keep driving the space forward
0: evan can you kind of walk us through what it's like to be growth at kraken
2: it's been an interesting experience so Uh, One of the biggest things I learned about Kraken immediately when I started is there's such a high focus on security, and that's a a good thing and a bad thing. Um, I think it's unequivocally a good thing for clients because it keeps their funds secure. Um, We also have a big focus on privacy. The one area that it's difficult as a growth marketer is it means that our tool set is limited. So one thing that I'm starting to learn about growth marketers at a lot of other companies is they really go all out on figuring out who you are and targeting you using things like Facebook and Google and whatnot. And that's something that just philosophically we're very against doing. So that limits the tool set to grow. uh, But it also is something I appreciate a lot as a user of the service and of other services that they're not exploiting customers. Um, But it has been really interesting to to dive into why people want to trade cryptos, what they're looking at um, into the trading space itself. And it's given me a new perspective on like how narratives play a role in the space, uh, how just price jumps can be the biggest impact on your business as a growing business. So crypto watch doesn't have nearly the brand equity that Kraken has. So our user numbers and our visitor numbers move a lot with just attention on the space, because it's kind of like a, market cap where the more people are searching the more people are finding CryptoWatch. so when there's a big surge in just general market awareness we see big surges in visitors and engagement and whatnot so it kind of swings with the market which can be fun as a growth marketer it's, it's difficult to parse out the numbers and say did we do something or did the market do something but it's also really fun because when the market does something we have a reason to hop on Twitter and whatnot and talk about it and share it and really grow with that wave.
1: Evan, I'm sure kind of like your position right now at Kraken, kind of getting to see the ebbs and flow of market sentiment kind of gives you a very interesting perspective on what the market actually cares about from a asset perspective. I would love to get into a little bit of like, you know, how you view this market, what, which assets do you like, uh, which ones do you think are underrated, stuff like that?
2: Yeah, so David's not going to like this answer, but uh, pretty much all of the focus, I can't speak to Kraken as an exchange and the Kraken trading volumes, but um, on CryptoWatch, almost all of the focus is on Bitcoin. So, and, and maybe that is just a result of the bear market and a recent rise, and there hasn't really been a quote-unquote alt season yet or people looking at that, but there really is, like, I see a, a long tail of attention where the most liquid coins get most of the visits. So it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, XRP, like pretty much the top five dominate all the visits and attention on CryptoWatch. That's what people are really trading on the interface through checking the price of looking at their portfolios and checking uh, is really all focused around those highly, highly liquid assets.
0: So can you, for our audience and, and for me, actually, I've actually never traded on Kraken before. I try and keep my exchange footprint down to a minimum just because it seems like a, a pain to, to sign up for all the various exchanges. Um, but for people that haven't traded on Kraken, uh, what, kind of, what about Kraken sets Kraken apart from all the other exchanges?
2: So we're trying to create a one-stop shop where people can across the world can take care of all these different needs. I think in the crypto landscape, we've seen this shaking out of there's like several different types of exchanges that people go to. There's the fiat on ramp, which Kraken is a big one. Those are your trusted, quote unquote, regulated, uh, can take your U.S. dollars and turn it into crypto. Then there's like the altcoin exchanges like Binance is the best example. Poloniex used to be the king of this space or Bittrex, where you can trade on a bunch of different coins. Some of them may be. Uh, less than savory from a regulator's perspective. So like Binance, they'll try to stay, they'll play a kind of regulatory whack-a-mole game, try to stay out of areas that have tight regulation. And then there's like the high leverage casinos that have showed up like Bitmax and Darabit that have these uh, highly leveraged futures products or options or whatever. And Crypto or Kraken, sorry, kind of wants to play in all the spaces that we can Well continuing to be compliant with regulators working with regulators to push the space forward we definitely believe in uh, working within the constraints of the law and working with regulators to push it forward we don't really think that just going off and domiciling in the middle of nowhere will be good for the space overall Um, so we're trying to kind of maintain that standing good standing but we recently bought crypto facilities which is a, a futures platform it's regulated in the UK and rebranded that as Kraken Futures. So we're kind of acquiring these different pieces and trying to put it all together so that with a Kraken account, you can do small trades, big trades, you can buy and hold, you can trade futures, you can do all of that underneath the Kraken
1: umbrella. You mentioned in your intro that you have been studying adoption. Can you kind of talk a little bit about your thinking around like adoption, where price comes into that, where narratives come into adoption and uh, growing this space and getting people interested.
2: Yeah. One thing that I've learned just, and this is over my entire career studying and working in tech is I think there's often a, a misconception that you build really great technology and people gravitate towards great technology. And what I've learned time and time again, and I think this applies to both the protocols out there, as well as our tool specifically, is you don't really build great technology and then people show up. You have to meet people where they are and show them how your technology helps them. And that is equally as powerful and as important as building really great technology. The Slack founder, Stuart Butterfield, when they released Slack, had probably the best write-up on this idea that I've ever seen. So he said that for Slack, we have to build a really powerful tool, but we also have to show people how it's useful to them. So we can't just say it's a messaging tool. People don't want a messaging tool. They want to get rid of meetings or transform and streamline the way that they communicate. And that's what Slack delivered. So they started talking to that value prop and building around that value prop. And I think that's really important for us as a tool to figure out what do traders want? What are they interested in? And then how do we meet them on the channels where they're looking for this type of stuff and meet them with the tools that they need to get whatever they want to do done? Analyzing coins, seeing the whole market, trading across exchanges, whatnot. Um, I think that also applies very well with protocols. And one thing I've been thinking a lot about, to your point of narratives and different coins out there, especially right now, this narrative of Bitcoin as a macro hedge is touching on a really salient nerve. And I think that explains a lot of the reason why it's going up in price and people are buying it and people are talking about it because there, people have shown a relationship. Even if that's over a short period of time and it just exists in a tweet, there's a relationship there and they've got it into people's heads. And I think it's more important that people are looking for this than that it exists. What I mean by that is like people have a real need right now in financial circles to find something that is a macro hedge and people that are supporting Bitcoin are going at these people with a message of this is your hedge and this is why it's moving in an uncorrelated way in the markets. It's decentralized, all this stuff, and they're spreading this meme, if you will. And I think it's more important that those people are really looking for a solution. All Bitcoin has done is provide one. It's not like Bitcoin created this incredible technology and now is forcing it down people's throats and teaching them how useful it is. People were already looking for it, and it just showed up.
0: You said that, that there's this investor appetite for an uncorrelated asset, which we've always had, right? Like gold, that's what gold is for. So you're supposed to, in when, when you have that appetite, you're supposed to go off and buy gold. But I wouldn't, even outside of the fact that crypto and Bitcoin exists, I would say that gold is not really that appetizing anymore. Like it's kind of just this, it's just like your, your grandfather's investment, right? Like it's just not cool anymore. And especially in these days of, um, uh, private equity with like uh, uh, like Uber and Lyft and and even Slack did like a, a 100x return on just like the initial seed rounds and then people are trying to have these crazy returns because as a glow as a global society we are much more impatient we want a lot more um, instant gratification and just gold is just not that it just moves way too slowly so I think that the whole crypto industry really fits into this idea of let's I want to buy something that does not correlate with um, the rest of the world but also can give me my like potential 100x returns
2: point is right that gold exists so you know why are people not going to that Um, and why are people not going to things that have a bigger return I mean I think the the 100x return we've already seen that with bitcoin so people are kind of thinking if they didn't get in on the last bull run, maybe I have to get on on the next one, because it clearly has had massive returns in the way that gold has had returns, but not nearly to that level. And I also agree that gold isn't cool, right? It's like your grandfather's way to store wealth and like hold a gold bar and a handgun in your go bag in the basement in case of the apocalypse. But I think Bitcoin actually is cool. It's this new thing that nobody really understands. and you have to be some weird tech nerd to quote unquote, get it or to understand the technology. And that makes it this weird meme that people are trying to figure out what this is, why it's going up in price. And that that kind of like untouchable nature of it that makes it hard to understand, the fact that it's hard to understand, I think makes people dive into it deeper. It definitely made me dive into it deeper and try to understand what it is, why it's taking off, why people care about this. And I think as a money or a store of value, that ability to drive people deeper in the the rabbit hole is everything. Um, Money to me is really, it's an intersubjective reality. It only exists because we all agree that it exists. All of these things that we put value on, these all exist, all that those numbers exist because we all agree that there's a number there. That's what a market is, right? People agree to buy and sell at a certain price you reach a certain liquidity and now that thing has a price. So gold has a price, Bitcoin has a price. And I think that literally those things only exist because people are buying into them and Bitcoin is no different. It's just numbers in a ledger, but people are buying into this idea that it's a store of value the same way that they buy into the idea that gold is a good store of value and we should use it in the apocalypse or hold it when the global markets are crashing. I think Bitcoin is like sliding into that space. The only difference is gold was that type of cool asset back in the 20s. Now Bitcoin is that type of cool asset. And on top of that, it actually does have much better properties. You can hold it and transfer it much easier than you can with gold. Uh, So monetarily, it it has some properties that make it easier to use as a money in a store of value.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that the transportability and unseizability of Bitcoin is something that appeals to like the hardened gold bugs. Uh, I I met a guy actually in Cambodia, and I know that you are uh, headed to that side of the world soon. But uh, he he was you know a hardcore like liberty guy, like wants freedom. And he was telling me about how. In Russia, they would weave gold into their pants so that way they can smuggle it out. Wow! And I was like, dude, with cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, you can just like memorize twelve mm. words, and then you can take that anywhere you want and restore it on any phone. And he's just like, what? Yeah, Bitcoin's definitely a ten x, if not a hundred x, improvement on on gold, in my opinion. Uh, and it's interesting to me how long Gold's Lindy will
2: matter. I think there's also a a big argument for the portability side, that portability and custody that's interesting to me because with gold, as you say, it's much harder to move around. And as regimes try to close their nation's borders or keep capital within the country, it becomes a lot harder to move that type of wealth outside, which increases the appetite for something like Bitcoin where you can just hide it in your head and nobody will know that you have it Um, I was talking to someone who invests a lot in Chinese miners and mining hardware producers and he was saying that the appetite in China and the the attitude is much different than here. Whereas here we think of Bitcoin and a lot of cryptocurrencies as like some sort of cool technology, something we could program or something we can speculate on in China. It is a place to to move wealth. When you need to get your wealth out of the country, you put it in Bitcoin and you move it out or you put it in Tether or Ethereum or something else and you move it around. And that's like something that we just don't really think about because in the U.S., I don't think there's much appetite to move our money outside of the U.S. Our banking institutions are pretty solvent. Um, So, like, I'm not worried about, you know, my bank account disappearing tomorrow or somebody confiscating my wealth. But apparently that is a concern for people in other regimes. And that portability just makes it useful in a way, which makes it easier for people to accept.
1: Speaking of narratives, a few people have been harping on this idea that China is gobbling up all the bear market Bitcoins. Can you confirm this? Like, what's the activity like in China?
2: That's a good question. I, I really don't know, but I can say that emerging markets, I think, have a much different view and a more serious view of Bitcoin than we do in the U.S., and I can't help but chalk that up to the fact that the institutions where you can store wealth are a lot different, and the risk of having it taken of revolutions and whatnot, there's just more recent history of that in other places in the world than here.
1: Um, so do you follow Bitcoin, Tina? A little bit, but not recently. Why? He really talks about how like Bitcoin's price is its biggest PR, like Orange Coin good price go up like that is that that is bitcoin's marketing team um and uh, i know that you kind of have some opinions about this uh i would love to kind of get your thoughts on like where does price play into how adoption spreads how important is that how sustainable is that all those things
2: yeah so actually if you asked me a year ago i would have told you that we need some sort of stability, that stable coins are going to help us onboard more people and that we need to move away from speculation. Because at that time, I think there was much more of an association with uh, of the whole sector with scams and ICO ripoffs and whatever, um, trading group scams, all of that stuff, which kind of gave speculation a really bad name. And I've kind of come around on that, uh, and I think mainly because... me speculation it hits on that idea of a salient nerve right you need to get a product to somebody and have them use it whether that's like a digital product or holding a type of money they need to have a really salient need to have that product and making money is a really salient need for just about everyone it touches the wealthiest person probably even more than the poorest person on earth Everyone has that kind of drive because of what we associate with money. I think it's like, I don't want to sit on a stack of dollar bills, but it allows me to take care of my family and feed myself and stay alive. Like in our modern world, it is a very powerful and useful thing to have a lot of money. And so I think that speculation, it just appeals so broadly and so viscerally and really nothing else I can think of for a product appeals that way. Most products have a a market size, right? You can put a market size that's smaller than 7 billion people, but the market size for people who want to increase their wealth is everyone. I I can't think of people that wouldn't want that and that doesn't hit them like really
0: deeply. So what narratives this – this is going to be a really hard question at least for me. Um, I would have trouble answering it. But what narratives would you think have become more true or resonated with you more – as a result of your your work with uh, with Kraken, like what narratives would you have not realized are true or as salient, or what have been like validated from the from the information that you've gotten? That's a good question. What narratives can you bet back up with data that we don't have? <laughs> <laughs>
2: He's <laughs> trying to get cracking private data out <laughs> of me right now. Yeah i I think this narrative of oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Like the whole Bitcoin as a global macro hedge has taken off a lot, and i I didn't really understand that or believe it. And now I'm watching Bloomberg more regularly because we have cable at my house and I'm seeing that come up more and more like just two nights ago I saw Bitcoin listed below like US large cap stocks real estate like these large names of asset groups or categories and that was like eye-opening to me that the financial press is now covering this and interested in it Um, I think another narrative that I've become more interested in as I've worked at Kraken and seeing some more of the regulatory landscape and just become more interested in that side of things is the whole like stablecoin regulated like internet money meme, which kind of started with things like Maker uh, and Tether, although Tether is more about speculation and USDC and whatnot, and creating this like programmable money, which I think suffers from the speculation, not suffers from the speculation problem, but doesn't have the same speculation advantages that you get with Bitcoin. Um, there's now this whole like narrative of countries with I mean, mm. the whole Fed now thing, which is not really a cryptocurrency or plays in the same space. But the idea that banks and governments are now like, oh, shit, we need to think of something that works as efficiently as these systems because they may not work that efficiently now, but they certainly will. It makes me think about like early Internet where there was the public internet, which was kind of a wild west, and there's all sorts of weird stuff happening on there. And then corporations created their own little intranets because they didn't wanna be out on the public internet. They didn't know what was going on out there. They didn't want their data out there. They created everything on premise. They had their own like sites for their own employees, and then they accessed on premise computers. And that model has totally changed over time just because I think openness will always beat out closed systems. There's just more innovation. There's more stress testing. And I think that's going to happen again here. But we're starting to see that these like closed systems are propping up more and they're getting more attention. Um, remains to be seen whether we end up with a closed system for no time at all or 20 or 50 years or 100 years. I don't know but i still think there's opportunity for an open system to beat out whatever closed system ends up happening if one does
1: regulatory arbitrage is an incredibly important factor in this thing because these protocols are global but you can operate them from anywhere in the world so as long as there is a safe haven you can kind of do whatever you want when are one of these countries going to come out and say, hey, we're actually just going to adopt one or multiple of these open standards. And will that throw a wrench into these intranets, you know, real quick before they even get time to produce? I feel like that's not very far away, to be honest.
2: Yeah, I think that's a that's another narrative that I don't think has really reached beyond the crypto community yet. But a country like North Korea or Venezuela coming out and saying we're going to use Bitcoin as our and would do well for the the overall narrative. I think that would easily be picked up by U.S. regulators and EU regulators, and just like they do with criminal activity um, and tax evasion, they'll say, "Look, it's the currency of North Korea. We don't want you to use it." And that is a, a very compelling argument that would make people, I think, think uh, think twice before they buy it, uh, especially with this whole like conscious consumerism movement like why would i buy this thing that's when i buy it i'm propping up the price of uh north korean currency um it's interesting you bring up countries and open systems though cuz I, I actually think that yeah I, I actually think that the adoption of these open systems will end up in the long term breaking down nation-states themselves. Like, I've kind of had this idea for a long time, and, and Bitcoin really quickly started to fit into it, that we're moving away from identification with nation-states as people. And nation-states are are a technology, right? They, they haven't existed forever. They're not a physical, natural law. There have been all sorts of different ways of organizing humanity over centuries. And nation states are really only two or three hundred years old, kind of as a move over from monarchies. And I think by having an open system um, with money, that will break down those barriers between different countries and allow people to not only communicate in the way that they do today, but transact without borders. And we'll start to see more and more erosion of borders. I was talking about this with a friend a little while ago that, like, I think a lot of people, especially in our generation, identify more sometimes with people who live across the world than they do with people who live right next door to them. This was definitely true of me growing up. Like, I think I identified more with people that were interested in technology and that I could find on the Internet than with people who live next door to me in my Midwestern suburb and like to watch football all the time. Uh, and I still feel like that today, and it's part of the reason that I'm kind to move to Thailand and do all this adventuring around the world is because I'm looking for those types of communities, and they don't exist next door to me right now. And I think by allowing people to transact globally really efficiently, that's, again, going to remove this this identification with your local system, with your town, state country whatnot and we'll identify more with communities that think like us than with places
0: uh, yeah, I yeah I totally agree uh, borders are most borders are already pretty weak now like the euro borders are pretty much non non-existent I mean there's kind of a technicality but even in like Africa and and Asia like borders matter less uh, and I think the emergence of these internet based I think of them as nations um, Actually, I really only think of Ethereum as a nation. Bitcoin, you can kind of think of this online entity, but Ethereum is really this internet nation, right? And I do think that the world of decentralized identity is going to come out on Ethereum, where people are going to have, for the first time ever, this way of proving who they are without needing a government ID or a login with Facebook button. And that's really going to break down borders because at some point... The structure of a, com- of a country <clears throat> is really just going to be this country. Like most countries don't have much structure. Like, Afri- like a lot of countries in Africa don't have a lot of structure. It's pretty anarchist, it's pretty self governing societies and communities. And I think um, like Ethereum as a financial fabric layer uh, that kind of coats the whole entire earth is going to provide the structure for these communities that they've never really had before. Uh, and what that is going to mean is that one community and another community across a border are really just going to be the same community because they all operate on ethereum right they're transacting they're transacting with each other through the Ethereum financial fabric. and so it's really going to break down what it means to be a citizen of the world when everyone has some sort of identity system on top of Ethereum and they can transact borderlessly. Uh, and I mean, countries like, you know, the United States or the UK with very rigid borders are always going to be the last borders to fall, maybe not within our lifetimes, maybe after that. But it's, there's a, a spectrum of how hard a border is. And I think as cryptocurrency grows, borders are going to come down as a result. And we're going to finally become the global population, global unified population that we hoped we always would be um, with the growth of crypto.
2: Protocols and a lot of the stuff that's being built on top of Ethereum is like templates and enforcement. So you could create an Aragon DAO, for example, to create a corporation out of thin air without having to go through government processes. That's obviously a lot easier than going through your process in Delaware or whatever and paying LegalZoom a thousand dollars to do it for you, and then to actually enforce those contracts. I literally just did. Really, though. to create an Aragon DAO? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Earlier today. Awesome. <laughs>
1: Big pain in the butt. It's yeah. not even done yet.
2: Um, and then I he, think it he will... He didn't
1: create a DAO. He created a corporation. Oh, a
2: corporation, yeah. I need to do that soon as well. Hopefully it's not too bad. Uh, but yeah, I think it will It will also be the, the layer that enforces contracts. The one thing that I'm worried about and that I think a lot of people in the smart contract sort of field uh, don't spend enough time thinking about, I think, is that... This will help enforcement of contracts from a monetary perspective. But if someone is holding a gun to your head, right, nothing else matters within that system. So within the closed system of Ethereum, the country operates very well. Contracts are upheld through financial obligations and through the certainty of the math and the smart contracts. But if someone is coercing you outside of the system, There's really no way for Ethereum to know that or enforce that. And that is the one thing that governments do provide to us that we would not get in some sort of digital system is the physical protection. And that's something that's existed across centuries. Like that's that's why castles existed in the Middle Ages, because there were knights that would defend the farmers. And in turn, the farmers would pay to keep what their lot was for the protection that's it's a very simple transaction that's exact existed for centuries and still exists today. I think through taxes and our government and our military spending, like that stuff sometimes is abused and certainly doesn't always work as intended, but does keep us safer than, uh, than I think an open system necessarily does by default.
0: So I actually don't think that that's an issue. Um, The whole issue of the fact that there's this immutable ledger and that there's permanent one-way transactions has been one of the things that's held the crypto world back because of how dangerous it is to play with large amounts of value. Um, But then there are these things called smart contract wallets, where if somebody's holding a gun to my head and I have all of my value in ETH or DAI or whatever inside of my smart contract wallet... uh, i can the the wallet is itself a contract to not do certain things it, it's a it's a limiter it's a it's a rule based system that says that only value can only behave in this amount of way Uh, And so you can set certain parameters, right? Like you can only withdraw $500 a day. So you can limit yourself to only a $500 loss. You can also limit yourself saying if someone tries to move more than $500 a day, then no money can be moved for X amount of time. Uh, And I think there's actually just going to be a huge revolution. One of the big products to come out of Ethereum, I think over the next year, uh, is going to be uh, iterations on smart contract wallets. That are going to make people feel very secure about storing a large amount of funds and so like what you, like what you could do is you could have a smart contract wallet with literally all your money in it uh, and if <clears throat> you can you can like make it freeze under a certain circumstance like if you break a, if you break a rule your funds can freeze uh, and you can set your contract your smart contract wallet to automatically send all the funds inside of it to a new wallet. Based on certain parameters So if you if you lose your wallet If you lose your smart contract wallet If you lose your phone You can say like If I have not made a transaction in the last 6 months Send all of my funds to this new address And your new address you can have saved somewhere else um, So I actually think that that problem is relatively solvable And is currently being solved on Ethereum So I'm actually not too worried about that
1: I think that he was talking more about Just protection in general Like your body But um... oh. It is pretty mm-hmm. interesting to see what's happening with the uh, touring complete totally. wallets.
0: Yeah, no, the smart contract wallets will protect you, your body, with no further protection. <laughs> you you still have a gun to your head, <laughs> but at least you have all your ether.
1: <laughs> a graphic I that I like complaints. a lot is something that Hasu put out in one of his articles, but it was kind of like talking about like the place of of uh like of the protections that bitcoin and cryptocurrencies like provide and they don't necessarily replace all of the institutions that government provide but they replace enough of them and they create very very strong assurances that enable commerce and trust and some form of identity at least with a wallet address at the minimum it is interesting that like where we have strong property rights You know, like in the US, in the UK, it's probably not going to take off as quickly, but most of the world has really bad property rights, especially in the monetary area. And Bitcoin, Ether, they're all going to just crush um, the fiat, crush the infrastructure, and, um, you know, think that it would Mm -mm. provide a lot of utility.
2: Yeah, I think it will. That's the emerging markets with Ethereum thing is something I've thought about too, because. I don't know that things like property rights, until we have maybe these fancy locking wallets and whatnot, and you do start to mitigate some of the, you put up roadblocks essentially to keep people from getting everything robbed from them at gunpoint or make it a lot harder to get robbed Um, might help, but something like for property that still needs to be respected by a a legal system that has physical abilities and just putting it all into a smart contract or into even Bitcoin or whatever, into some sort of open decentralized computer system doesn't stop someone from driving over to my farm and taking it from me by force. So I think some of that stuff, like you still need a, we need to think about how that will integrate with physical systems. And honestly, we just need to test it and try it because I think we can do all the theorizing we want, but it doesn't touch reality until you do it. And we need to see how systems that do enforce physical laws and people not coming over to your farm and taking it can play with decentralized protocols well. I think it makes a lot of sense for things like identity and things like money that do play pretty well in the current sort of setup of the world.
0: Yeah, I do think that is pretty interesting. If we do want... One of the big OG 2017 high-brained idea of cryptocurrency was like land registry in third world nations. Um, and so that'd be super cool if we could make plot registry based on a decentralized blockchain. Um, but as you said, the the only way that that is enforced is because if you break that rule some in, in a in a country with with a structure somebody with a gun is going to show up and reinforce that rule that you broke and that's how the rules enforced and there's no way that we know of yet today that i know of where if we have this like land registry on ethereum that you break that rule in real life how does the ethereum blockchain come down to the real world and enforce itself um an unsolved problem uh, perhaps unsolvable i don't know
1: I think the key here, once again, is regulatory arbitrage. Because once you can take at least your store of value uh, with you, then you can governments can now vie for your business. Um, and you're already seeing a little bit of that with like these island nations, some places in uh, in Asia, Singapore, stuff like that. But this is going to become more and more prevalent, I think. Um, and as people can now move and take their value with them um, and not worry about it being seized or confiscated or anything like that. Um, I think it's going to change the game at least when it comes to enforcing property rights.
2: Yeah. On the point of countries kind of breaking down, I think that's one way that they'll stay relevant is they'll create different jurisdictions uh, that have physical backing and military behind police behind enforcing some of these physical laws and they'll compete instead of kind of trap people in like they do today or keep people because of some sort of um, belief that you belong to this nation or this type of people or like a racial identity or whatnot. But they'll compete for people to bring businesses. I got an Estonian, um, what do they call it? EID or something like that. Like Estonia has this, ID program where anyone can apply and you get an ID card and you're now an Estonian like e-citizen and you can create a business there, you can get a bank account, you can pay your taxes all online through this portal. And what they're trying to do is essentially bring all these businesses in and these like digital nomads who want to sell to EU businesses, have an EU bank account, they can just open up in Estonia. They may never visit or even live there, but from a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense. If I and living in Vietnam and I do digital online work and I'm working for someone in France, I can now get paid from their French bank account to my Estonian EU bank account and everything works. So they're kind of competing for those- That's very cool. Types of people, those like global citizens of the that. Yeah, for sure.
1: (laughs) The world's about about to get get real crazy.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I think that's one thing we can all agree on. Um, And I, I sometimes lay, awake at night and think about this and I'm like I have this feeling that the world's about to get really fucking nuts and I feel like most people don't and am I crazy? No. Or is everyone else sane? Um, Or have we just noticed something before everyone else?
1: Evan is there any like is there any like kind of predictions or like directions that you think that this could go in terms of like the world going nuts and getting crazy?
2: Yeah I think there's kind of two paths. There's the open framework which I don't really know what's going to happen to governments and our our safety. I think it really matters on how we get there. Like if we get to everyone buying into Bitcoin as a store of value through an absolute collapse of institutions, it's going to be a hellhole and like a second medieval age. And then I think the other direction we can go in, well, I guess there's sort of three then. So we can go in like the open medieval age, or we can slowly transition from what we have today to a more open system that as sort of c- countries start to break down and whatnot, and it's peaceful and things overall get better. Or we go into this like hyper governmental surveillance state world, which, like learning about what's going on in China. That is the other possibility I see is all of our transactions are all recorded by centralized parties. Everything is censorable at once. All things are sort of centralized and monitored by a central authority with a ton of power and a ton of weapons. And that is equally scary as the medieval age. Um, So I think there's, we kind of, we'll get lucky, I think, if things turn out really peachy we'll see what sort of hell (laughs) we end up in
1: (laughs) wow (laughs) if we do wow wow well i think that's a fantastic (laughs) way to uh to cap out the show um i really hope that we take that middle path and uh and and it's 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 peaceful but all you can do is prepare
2: that said i so my my worldview is kind of shaped by a friend that i have a lot of these deeper conversations with And uh, he said, you know, it's kind of a wonder that we are where we are as a society, like the amount of uh, progress that we've made. I think as humanity, we actually have played the middle path pretty damn well for a long time. Um, So I have confidence that we will continue to play that. But things can always get really, really hairy and nasty.
0: Evan, where can people find you on Twitter?
2: I'm at 3Bayless on Twitter. Uh, check out my personal site, too. It's EvanBayless.com. B-A-Y-L-E-S-S.
1: Evan, thank you for coming on to the show, man. You know where you can find the show, at POV Crypto Pod. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. David, where can people find you?
0: You can find me at trustless state, both on Twitter and on Medium.
1: Awesome. And guys, just to reiterate what we said after the last show five star reviews please we appreciate it we need to get to 100 reviews guys I was checking the uh, the iTunes search results we're doing well but we could be doing a lot better so uh, help us move there's a lot of shit pods out there that we should definitely get in front of yeah I'm just like let's crush these motherfuckers
0: <laughs> alright Evan thanks for coming on the podcast
2: If it's true, then you might as well tell the lie If lies are blue, then it's a fire.